0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Sympathy for the Devil edition. It's Wednesday, October 12th. 2016. On today's show, Amanda Knox is the new true crime documentary from Netflix. It tells the story behind the beautiful young American exchange student convicted of murdering her British flatmate in the middle of an alleged orgy. It details her maltreatment at the hands of the Italian judicial system and a global tabloid press. And then how did rock and roll music go from being the creation of African Americans to being the nearly exclusive province of white artists and white culture? We'll discuss an excerpt from the new book, Just Around Midnight, with its author Jack Hamilton, who is of course Slate's pop critic, and finally, who created the fake internet persona Rachel Bruson and, and why. Joining me today is uh, Slate senior editor Gabriel Roth. Hello. Hey. Uh, you're filling in for Julia Turner. Um, I am. How does that feel?
1: Uh, it feels great. I am excited to step into Julia Turner's shoes and uh, I hope to do her proud.
0: Great. Maybe I can scream at you about neoliberalism or being a cyborg um yes I, I have some opinions about elena ferrante as well oh god well keep them to yourself and uh <laughs> we're joined by slate's of course film critic dana stevens hey dana
2: hello steven
0: dana before we dig in uh i, I think we have some business
2: Yes, indeed. I have one important announcement, which is that we have a live show in Los Angeles this week, which will air as our podcast next week. It's at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. It's this Thursday, October 13th. And if you're interested in getting some tickets, it hasn't quite sold out yet. You can go to slate.com slash live and get some spots there. And as threatened earlier on this podcast, if we manage to sell out this venue, Steve and I are going to perform some kind of as yet unspecified live musical performance. So... Take that as you will, (laughs) and please come see us on Thursday night. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'm going to walk around that entire venue in search of one empty seat in order to get us out of this. But um, I'm game if you are, Dana Stevens.
2: Absolutely. Oh, and we should mention that our guest at that show is going to be a very special guest. If you're a Panoply Network listener, you probably know and love her show already. It's Karina Longworth, the podcaster who hosts You Must Remember This, the great film history podcast that we've oft talked about here. So it will probably be a very movie centric and L.A. centric show, which sounds like a lot of fun to me.
1: And in the Slate Plus segment at the end of this episode, I will be talking to Dana and finding out everything you have been desperately wanting to know about the book that she has been writing and that has kept her away from the Culture Gab Fest uh, for that long stretch earlier this year. Um, So I'll be talking to Dana about uh, Buster Keaton and her work on uh, his life. And you should know that a year of Slate Plus membership for a limited time is still only $35, just $35 for one year of Slate Plus. Sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus.
0: Fantastic. All right. Um, let's dig in. Amanda Knox was a 20-year-old American exchange student in Perugia, Italy, when her roommate, an English girl, was brutally murdered. Uh, As Knox was and is almost absurdly photogenic, but also kind of sphinx-like, I would say, this set off a global tabloid feeding frenzy, and Knox and her Italian boyfriend were convicted of the crime. Uh, This has since gone through rounds and rounds of appeals. I assume, um, I, I address now the listener, I assume that you either know about the case and therefore know all about the case and therefore spoilers are impossible or you're indifferent to it. I think it's fair to say up front that the documentarian's Rod Blackhurst and Brian McGinn. They have access to all of the major players, to Knox and her Italian boyfriend. Um, And they retell the story of the conviction as a clear miscarriage of justice. They accompany Knox quite intimately through to her ultimate exoneration by the Italian Supreme Court, Dana, you back me up on this. This couldn't possibly be a spoiler for anybody left in the world who cared about this in the first place.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't think I can back you up there because the entire documentary was news to me. I don't know about you guys, but I tuned out this entirely when it was happening. I classed it with one of those tabloid scandals that was a freak event that wasn't going to teach me anything about the world, but would just be another lurid thing to read about. And when it all happened, I think the murder happened in 2007, right? I had a new baby. I had a new job. Just, I just pushed the Amanda Knox thing out of my mind. And so watching this documentary was full of shockers and revelations for me. I mean, just simply because of, of the multiple trials and appeals, I had assumed that there was some grain of evidence. So to see the degree to which, at least as this documentary pretty persuasively argues, it really was a witch hunt and just a, an absolute trumped up, I mean, just I don't know what other word for it. It was just a, a sort of a tabloid witch hunt. Was, that was a spoiler to me. If I'm guilty, it means that I am the ultimate figure to fear, because I'm not the obvious one.
3: The girl known as Foxy Noxy. Everyone is talking about it.
2: I mean, it was a feeding frenzy for everyone.
0: I also was completely indifferent to this when it... Um, played out in the tabloid press. Well, it was press. so sensationally covered, um, which is a
2: large part of what this documentary is about. That it was it, it was sort of hard to justify spending your time reading about it. I mean, it really was up there with you know alien baby found in supermarket.
0: And you and you. You draw from this documentary the conclusion that it's a well. No-brainer, I mean, the,
2: the documentary makes a very persuasive case. As I say, it is also very clear that this documentary is um, is firmly in her favor. The very first face you see is Amanda Knox's, the current Amanda Knox. You know, speaking directly to the camera and and seeming to appeal, you know, seeming to appeal to our our mercy or our pity mm-hmm. before the story yeah. ever begins to be told. And it may be that there is no. One to interview that has any credible evidence against her, but if there is such a person, that person is certainly not interviewed. We can talk about some of the omissions in the documentary, but I don't think the omissions that are there would indicate that Amanda Knox and Rafael Solicito, her, her Italian boyfriend, were involved in any way.
0: Gabriel, what was your relationship to this story? Well, I followed it maybe one or two
1: notches more than Dana did. I followed it enough to get a basic sense of the outline of it, which is sort of immature young American woman spends a college year abroad in Italy and gets wrapped up in the machinations of a system that is older and scarier and impervious to rationality than anything that you want to think about and and winds up – um, you know, being railroaded into a confession and then imprisoned for a crime that I, I, I think it's pretty clear that she didn't commit. Um, and, and that is so close to a particular nightmare of mine, that particular fantasy of being trapped in that kind of system, um, that I sort of had to turn it off. That's not something that I really want to go deep into. And so this, was the, the, as, this documentary was the furthest I had been into the Amanda Knox story, not out of disinterest, but out of fear.
0: Mm -hmm. And she says something um, quite interesting right up front. I mean, virtually maybe the opening frames of the documentary. She said, uh, Amanda Knox, looking into the camera, says, well, one of two things is true here. Either I'm a psychopath, um, the murder is absolutely brutal, and the way it got played out in the press was it had occurred in the midst of essentially a multi-party orgy orchestrated by Knox um, that gets interrupted by the, uh, um, you know, puritanical roommate, and so they enact a grisly, murderous revenge on her. I mean, the story itself seems just totally preposterous when one says it. But she says, either I'm a complete sociopath, a complete psychopath, or or this could happen to anybody. And both of those are so terrifying that neither is especially satisfying in itself. But Dana, it's some quality about her face, and she herself also addresses this, that, that her face is the kind of face that draws to it a lot of attention because it's classically beautiful, but also Mona Lisa-like inscrutability to it, and people projected all kinds of things onto it.
2: Right. It seems like from the testimony of Giuliano Mignini, who's the Italian prosecutor who who prosecuted this case the first time around— I mean, he, he's, he's an interesting character that we'll get into, sort of a comic and yet terrifying figure in himself. But it seems that the main basis of his pinning the case on Amanda Knox in the first place has to do with her emotional reaction at the crime scene when she came back to this apartment, which the, the two women had been living together with other with Italian roommates for around two weeks. So this was the very beginning of their study year abroad. So it's really hard to imagine what the motive might be. At any rate, her reaction at the scene was what caused Benigni to pin the crime on her in the first place simply because, as any 20-year-old woman might, she broke down upon returning to her house from her boyfriend's apartment and realizing that one of her roommates had been brutally stabbed. And the prosecutor recounts the fantasies that he projects onto this woman, not at all acknowledging them as such. These must have been screams of guilt over the remembered suffering of her roommate and immediately concocts this this strange fantasy involving Amanda Knox, as you say, being the chief of this this orgy with no evidence other than the fact that he found her reaction sort of inappropriate.
1: Yeah, I I think it's pretty clear that she was an eccentric person, that she maybe you know, she was a teenager or barely out of her teens and 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 she had some unusual responses that that she grinned or or cuddled with her boyfriend at a moment right after she had, you know, heard the news and, and and that, that uh, a lot of people who observed her said, well, this is a very strange way for her to behave. Now, it may be that she was just an unusual person who had been brought up in a sort of tolerant environment and, and was comfortable with her eccentricities and was not a high self-monitor um, and, and wasn't very good at controlling her reactions. But in any case, as she says in the documentary, you know, this is not evidence. Look at me. Look in my
0: eyes. What you're seeing is not evidence. You're seeing my eyes. It should be said that the documentary uh, is well-structured around essentially four major characters, the two um, young lovers, the Italian prosecutor, and a fourth character that I think we have to get to, um, Gabriel, right away, the British journalist, who um, is the very, very picture of glibness in the service of um, uh, the salacious appetites of his readers, and his attempt to justify his behavior retrospectively in the face of her apparent innocence is really is the most revealing aspect of the documentary i think anyway why don't we listen to a clip um he's really one of a kind
3: it had that sexual intrigue girl-on-girl crime if you like the pack were in their hotel room and everyone was going Mandanox, ox tap 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 into their computer this picture pops up on MySpace of Amanda Knox with a machine gun, laughing hysterically as she was firing it. And we're thinking, wow, great. She's a complete and utter nut job. We had Rafael Celesto tapped him in, and there he was dressed as a mummy with a meat cleaver. I mean, you just couldn't ask for any better material to illustrate a story with.
2: Yeah, that journalist's name is, is Nick Pisa, and, uh, and he is a, also another fascinating character who, like the Italian prosecutor almost unconsciously reveals himself on camera. You know, he's, he's given as much, as much a chance to tell his story as Amanda Knox is, and he really sort of reveals his own his own character in doing so. He's almost like a creation out of a Christopher Guest movie. who would be a, a parody of a, of a corrupt tabloid journalist.
1: It's true, but I think he's also revealing, sort of openly revealing the norms of his profession, right, of British tabloid journalism, which is, if it's a story, you go for the story, and you don't slow down, and you don't stop to check, because if you do, someone else is going to scoop you. And there, there's something of the sort of lovable rogue about his self-portrayal. He wants you to think, oh, he's a naughty boy, isn't he? He's really He didn't check his facts and he printed some stuff that wasn't true, but wow, it got on the front page and he sort of rubs his hands gleefully. I think he is aware in the documentary that he's coming off as a villain or as a rogue and and he's comfortable with that. And And within the British tabloid
0: world, that's what you're supposed to be. I don't think he's aware of what an ass he really is, or at least the extent of what an ass he is. I mean, one of the last shots of him is uh, saying, um, by way of supposed self-exoneration, he says, they t- you know, the, the Italian police told us X. How are we supposed to check that? I mean, are, are we supposed to go to some other source? Uh, I mean, essentially what he's saying is, um, goodness knows how. I mean, he literally uses those words. Goodness knows how a journalist goes about being a journalist. I mean, you might as well say that and and goodness
2: had nothing to do with it to quote
0: yes and um what the the most successful aspect of the documentary in my my estimation dana is it shows how her face her singularly sort of classically beautiful face her inscrutable and occasionally slightly odd manner um coupled with um some of the obviously salacious details of of the murder um, got fed into the British in basically, essentially into the Murdoch Empire. I mean, let's call it for what it is for the into the Daily Mail. Um, and they pieced it together into a narrative of her um, uh, depravity and guilt that then put pressure on the Italian police and judicial system, first of all, to make it seem as though they were not incompetent. Uh, Second of all, there was an international aspect, which is that the Italians wanted to show that they were perfectly capable of prosecuting this beautiful American girl, regardless of what kind of international pressure there might be on behalf of her innocence. Um, And so it shows this entire economy of self-interest, of of really venal self-interest, clicking into action at the expense of this poor girl.
2: Well, and, and also a phenomenon that was just starting to peak at that time and then I think started to be noticed and to be so obvious to the public that it started to be cut back on, which is that any story involving a pretty white girl would dominate the national, if not international, press for week upon week. And uh, I think an important omission from much of the coverage of the original case and also pretty much omitted from this documentary, which I don't want to be admitted from our conversation, is the identity of the apparent actual killer of Meredith Kircher, which was this uh, Ivory Coast immigrant named Rudy Gede. It's pronounced different ways by Italians and Americans and Brits in the movie, but I'll, I'll say it that way. His DNA was found at the site. He was found guilty. He was put in jail. I think he got a 20-something-year sentence, which he's still serving. And, uh, and that... Gets very glossed over in this documentary as well. And I, I don't I'm not sure if that's because his relatives or friends were unable to participate in the documentary legally or refused to participate. But there is a sense here. I think that this documentary is not unguilty of some of the same tabloidism that it's investigating. I think you hear that a little bit, for example, in the very sensational music behind the clip we heard earlier of the of the British journalist. I, I think that it's using that sensationalism basically for good ends to show that this person, these two people were were wrongly convicted of a crime. But um, but there's something glossy and slick about this documentary and a feeling that things are being left out. Again, not things that would prove those two people guilty, but things that would expand the context and our knowledge and understanding of the case. This is no making of a murderer, no. although some people thought that was biased as well. But it's in, in terms of its breadth of scope, right, and, and of what it looks like, it's no O.J. made in America. Mm-hmm. It's something It's something much simpler and more pointed in its, in its motives. Well, the the
1: movie is called Amanda Knox, right? It's not called Meredith Kircher. It's not a movie about this murder. It's a movie about this American girl who goes to Italy and gets wrapped up in this, this horrible situation, the Italian judicial system and the press um and and i think that's a legitimate choice in a way i think i mean we assume the movie leads us to assume that rudy good is the actual killer and and the story of a, a young woman being murdered by a neighbor in her apartment complex is not in and of itself an interesting story what's interesting is about the way in which this presumably innocent person can get caught up in the terrifying machinery of justice for years and years
0: one final note from me is that I thought the the, the the last shots of the documentary, of her back home in Seattle, fully exonerated, but in the process of being dropped by that machinery back into life, and how um, um, how much of a kind of brutal cosmic non sequitur that is for her, and the I what the odd irony is that behind that fetching Mona Lisa face is now a person of real depth. And and kind of powerful um, introspection. It's really, it, in a weird way, for all of its shallow aspects, is kind of a fascinating um, drama. Anyway, the um, documentary is called Amanda Knox. It's streaming on Netflix. Very curious to know what predisposition people brought to watch it and how that might have been changed. Uh, come talk to us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. How did rock and roll music, a genre rooted in black traditions and many of whose earliest stars were black, come to be understood as the natural province of whites? So asks Jack Hamilton, who is Slate's pop critic and a professor of American studies and media studies at University of Virginia. Um, he goes on to say, and why did this happen during a decade generally understood to be marked by unprecedented levels of interracial aesthetic exchange, music collaboration, and commercial crossover more broadly? I'm quoting from an excerpt from his new book, Just Around Midnight, uh, that's been published on Slate. Jack, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Why don't we dig in? This is a this
0: is not a new topic, but you're coming at it in a new way. The idea that whites were, in a sense, filters and thieves when it came to um, black music. What about um, your argument is new?
3: Well, I feel like I'm in an academic job interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dissert- dissertation defense. Um, Can you perch well, awkwardly on a it, hotel bed mm-hmm. while you answer the question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I so I think actually, um yeah, one of the things that's new about it, I think this is a topic that's obviously kind of a perennial one and a perennially controversial one, um. And it's something that it was—it's a topic that I've always been interested in, and one that I had never seen. I felt really adequately addressed. Like, there's different ways that people have kind of come come at this question. Like, one way is through uh, a very kind of blunt, um, kind of cultural theft argument—the um, idea that you know, either you know. Elvis stole rock and roll or Mick Jagger stole rock and roll, um, which struck me as, you know, not, not entirely, uh, you know, while there's certainly kernels of truth to things like that, not entirely helpful and not, not really, um, faithful to how music itself actually works. You know, music is, you know, is every, every piece of music worth hearing has appropriated something from some musical culture that is outside of the one that has produced it. Um, You know, musicians draw from influences that are outside of their own uh, personal circumstances all the time. Uh, Music, and particularly popular music, is really built upon borrowing. And also arguments like that seem to really conflate economic injustice with sort of artistic and and cultural injustice. Um, And so I was sort of interested in the way that genres... Um yeah, shift and like what, what it means when genres are constructed and, and how genres get constructed. Do genres get constructed more at the level of musical activity and what musicians are actually doing, or do genres get constructed more through the way that people talk about music and the way that, you know, musical discourses circulate? So one of the things that my book is very interested in uh, is that this is the the um you know, this decade is really the rise of of rock criticism as a serious form. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine is founded in November of 1967. Um, you know, this is also you, the the emergence of someone like Bob Dylan. Uh, his particularly his move from folk into pop or or rock, um, with with you know the most famously through like a Rolling Stone, uh, really prompts a sea change in the way people talked about and wrote about popular music. Um, and so there was a sort of va- there was an interesting kind of value system that was placed on certain types of music that uh, elevated them to a a higher standard of you know, artistic value and and things like that, and that that tended to be more uh, v- very much disproportionately afforded to white artists. Um, the Beatles and Dylan being the two kind of primary examples of that. Um, and so that was basically what my book is is really tracing is that shift and trying to argue that that shift was really more about the way that people articulated um, and interpreted the music, rather than what was actually happening at the level of the music. That there was much more interracialism uh for a much longer time in the 1960s uh black and white artists being influenced by by each other being in conversation with one another um than has previously really been allowed for in the way that the, that the history of this decade has been has been written mm-hmm. and it eventually it took its toll on the music itself though right that that that
0: once those you know organs of opinion were in place and um, once this kind of recept, you know, receptivity that you point to or X set of expectations was in place, um, a, a black rock and roller became an anomaly so that you're left with Jimi Hendrix as this lone stranded anomaly, really, in the history of rock and roll.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I found when I was doing my research is that, you know, we now think of Hendrix as really the only African-American performer that you will hear with any regularity on a, on a quote unquote, classic rock radio station these days. He's the one African American performer who's squarely in that pantheon. Um, and we take that today as kind of a given. We think of Jimi Hendrix as a rock icon, but even during his lifetime, he was seen as extremely controversial being a, a, a black man playing electric rock and roll guitar, uh, in this style that was no longer thought to be, um, In accordance with his racial identity. So there was throughout Hendrix's career, you know, 1967, 68, he's having critics like literally call him an Uncle Tom, uh, you know, various sort of racial epithets directed at him, largely from white critics, also from black critics, though, too. people who were accused him as being basically a race traitor, um, a sellout that he was making inauthentic music uh, by virtue of of basically his skin color not matching up with the sound that was coming out of his uh, his body and his instrument. Which is strange, right? Because when you listen
1: to Hendrix's guitar playing, his lead guitar playing is derived from blues musicians like B.B. King or, or Albert King. And mm-hmm. and his rhythm guitar playing is derived from soul guitar players. Um, and And so it's strange that somehow it doesn't sound or it stopped sounding like a black style of playing at one point. Maybe that has more to do with the other musicians in his band who were Englishmen.
3: Yeah, that's true. I mean, Hendrix's, the Jimi Hendrix experience was Hendrix and then two white English guys, Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding. Um, Hendrix's vocal style also, uh, you know, Hendrix, one of Hendrix's primary vocal influences was Bob Dylan. Um, and Hendrix sings uh, quite like Dylan um, and covered a lot of Dylan's music, uh, probably most famously all along the Watchtower, but also covered, you know, Like a Rolling Stone um, and other Dylan Dylan compositions. Um, yeah, but I think it was more the, the the, his his association with psychedelia um, You know, he was really like, I mean, this the year Hendrix breaks is 67, he starts becoming huge in England in 66. And this is another aspect of Hendrix is that he becomes big in England first. So when he comes to the States in 67, he's, he's kind of got this sheen of being a British import, which is very strange since he's, you know, from Seattle and sort of cut his teeth on the American R&B circuit. Um, but most American audiences were unaware of that. They didn't think that he was English, but he seemed to come from you know, this sort of other world, um, which is kind of true about Hendrix. I mean, the other thing about Hendrix is that he's just a completely extraordinary musical talent. <laughs> so there is a thing, of there's there's an element of Hendrix that is totally unprecedented and totally impossible to really place. When he emerges, though, in 67, 67 is the year that psychedelia really breaks. You know, Sgt. Pepper comes out in spring of 1967, and Hendrix is really on that wave. I mean, he, he emerges into prominence, international prominence with his performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, which is also the event that breaks Janis Joplin, um, you know, and so he gets he gets really taken up into that countercultural movement, which was very very white um, the the psychedelic counterculture movement.
2: And as you mentioned, upon his death in, in 1970, I think you said it was a British newspaper referred to him as an alien of the black man who was an alien in the world of rock. And that that was just in such a few, few short years after Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry. And, mm-hmm. and there were all kinds of black men inventing rock and roll. How did that collapse happen so quickly?
3: Um, you know, it's a great question. Um, and it happens so remarkably quickly. I mean, that's one of the things that is so striking about it. Um it i mean a lot of it is tied to uh kind of extra musical factors you know that there's this oh, there's so much happening in those years of you know really 1965 to 1970 there's just so many kind of cultural sea changes that are taking place and one of the things that my book is trying to do is separate separate out um some of those uh impulses and factors from from what was you know, quote unquote, actually happening in the music. So, I mean, like, you know, one of the things that, you know, rock music, rock criticism, um, certain spheres of it, I certainly don't want to paint all late 60s rock critics with one brush. I mean, there was and there's so much wonderful writing and so many wonderful writers that that period produces. But there was a way that there was this kind of white male hero worship that started to really reflect some of the more, um reactionary corners of the new left that saw itself under attack from both black, you know, white, the white male new left that saw itself under attack from both black cultural nationalism and radical feminism. Um, so this sort of doubling down on on kind of male intellectual heroism. Um, and there was also, I mean, to be fair, this was also something that you know, there was a, particularly among African-American writers, um, yeah, the, this with the cultural nationalist vein, there was a sense that there was something very different that was happening in black music. Certain things were grafted onto soul performers as well, so that people like, you know, Aretha Franklin and James Brown and and other performers were held up and, and sort of talked about in a different conversation uh, than their white pop counterparts, even though, you know, the evidence would really suggest that, uh, that that they were really kind of part of the same conversation in terms of each other. I mean, Aretha Franklin, the first track on her second album uh, on Atlantic Records is a cover of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, which was a song that was covered very frequently by R&B artists in this period. Otis Redding also covered it. And that's something that, that's a history that's kind of been lost in this period of like, what about the Rolling Stones as an R&B band? You know, uh, Satisfaction charted on the Billboard R&B charts, which is pretty remarkable. And so this is, like those kinds of interracial Racial threads and interracial connections are really what my book is trying to recover along with telling the somewhat sadder and more frustrating, infuriating story of how um, rock and roll music essentially gets whitewashed.
2: Can you talk about how the Rolling Stones, at least in this excerpt that's published on Slate from your book, the Rolling Stones occupy a unique position in this place, this place of mm-hmm. love and theft between <laughs> black and white, right? They do both yeah. because, as you say, the, the exchange goes more both ways. There are more black artists that are covering their work. They also mm-hmm. were more, more willing to acknowledge the influence and, and to bring black performers into their own songs. Can you talk about why the Rolling Stones to you occupy that kind of a fulcrum?
3: Yeah. um, Yeah. The Rolling Stones are just sort of a a pretty exceptional case in a lot of ways. Um, You know, the Rolling Stones in their early years really resented being even referred to as a rock and roll band. They wanted to be called a blues band or or an R&B band. Um, And throughout the 1960s, the, the Rolling Stones really maintain that very strong attachment to both historic African-American music and sort of blues history, but also a real engagement with contemporary African-American pop music. Uh, This is, you know, um, there's a reference to Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street on, in street fighting man. Um, they performed uh, with African-American performers throughout the 1960s, uh, both in the studio and on tour. I mean, a famous instance is Mary Clayton's uh, stunning vocal performance on on, on Gimme Shelter. Uh, also, their 1969 tour, they were um, supported by or the, uh, Ike and Tina Turner opened for them, and so did B.B. King. Um, so there was a way that the Rolling Stones, that in this moment where rock music is really... Uh, you know, self-segregating in a lot of ways or, or just segregating. Um, there's a there's a sense that the Rolling Stones are real holdouts. You know, the Rolling Stones are these are, are these musicians who are like kind of railing against that, trying to trying to preserve the again, you know, the sort of interracial uh, ethos of 60s music. And yet at the same time, there's all of these incredibly problematic parts of the Rolling Stones music and persona, you know, there's definitely this sort of, it, 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 the, the line between this kind of um, devotion to black music and a fetishization of black music is very, very blurry. Um, You know, there's a lot of kind of racial fantasy and playing with certain stereotypes that's happening in the Rolling Stones music and performance. And certainly, you know, there's like most, Kind of spectacularly and controversially, a song like "Brown Sugar," which my book takes its title from, uh, which is a you know this incredibly offensive song <laughs> about slavery and 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 sexual violence, um, and yet at the same time is this like you know incredibly. Uh, you know, disconcerting piece of music. And yet at the same time, it's like they're they're writing a song about something that no one else is writing about. This is something that is, and there's a way that it's reckoning, that song is reckoning with history in a way that no other rock song does, you know, and also and reckoning really with their own history. There's a line in that song, drums beating cold English blood runs hot. The, the acknowledgement of England's role in the transatlantic slave trade, which is something that is, I think, still to this day kind of under-discussed. And so this way that the Rolling Stones are folding themselves into that you know, incredibly horrible, ugly history, and yet at the same time, without that history, none of this would you know none of this would be happening um and so you know brown sugar being that is the fulcrum really for me brown sugar is just a song that i could spend my entire life thinking about and trying to puzzle through it's i mean on one hand it's it is the most offensive piece of music maybe ever made (laughs) and on the other hand it's also like one of the most subversive pieces of music ever made and i think that that really gets at the the underlying tension of the rolling stones and in a way you know this is a book that they are one of the big through lines of the book is is the rolling stones and their role in the 1960s Mm -hmm. and and the stones if i follow the argument you know correctly it's
0: it's they in this period of transition with the stones at the center of it a new version of white authenticity is posited that that Um, breaks free of its origins in black culture and from the moment the stones go mega as a rock and roll band and not as a british blues band from that moment on they are the template not black music itself and a new kind of white Mm -hmm. authenticity can prove itself in reference to their work and uh, you don't quite put it this way but this sort of culminates in the career of springsteen who is never really discussed in explicitly racial terms, but who's performing a mode of white authenticity relentlessly.
3: Yeah, and Springsteen, so my book actually really, it really does kind of end in 1970. uh, It has sort of a coda of 1971, which is, the last thing I write about in the book is brown sugar, um, which comes out in 71. So I don't actually get to really talk about Springsteen. Um, Certainly, unfortunately, don't get to talk about hip-hop. Maybe another book. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, you know, someone like Springsteen uh, is very interesting in all of this. And yeah, you're Absolutely right. The sort of white authenticity. I think I there, I do reference him in the introduction of the book and the way that Sp- that Springsteen's particular performance of a kind of working classness um, that you know becomes sort of effortlessly coded as white. You know that where it's it, it supersedes any discussion of race. That he's this sort of quote unquote everyman, um, and that's a very very white concept. Like that the, the everyman is you know in American culture tends to be just coded as a as a white male. Um, And And, and another big. Sorry. And in this election, when people talk about the working class, (laughs) they always mean the
0: white working class,
3: right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about how politically malleable Springsteen has been, I mean, most famously, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, incorrectly using uh, Born in the USA. But, you know, there is a way that, you know, Chris Christie is a huge Springsteen fan, and so is, you know, many sort of left intellectuals. Uh, so there's a way that, pr- that, yeah, Springsteen's particular type of kind of white male Jersey authenticity uh, is very, very um, pliable, you know, probably more so than he would he would ever like it to be. Um, but another band that I actually have written about uh, extensively for Slate, it doesn't get into the book, and I think speaks very directly to the Rolling Stones example is Led Zeppelin, who Led Zeppelin, um, you know, come up, a- come about Led Zeppelin, uh, their debut album comes out in January of 1969. Um, and Led Zeppelin are really, in a lot of ways, a post-Rolling Stones band. You know, they are, it's not like, you know, Robert, they don't necessarily sound like the Stones, but the particular type of white masculinity that Led Zeppelin is really kind of um, exemplifying and are performing uh, in their live shows, certainly, uh, as well as in the studio, I would say, is really drawn from the Rolling Stones' as example. You know, this sort of blues-derived uh, but at the same time, you know, very kind of, like what they're taking from the blues is basically sex, sex, sex. And then also this kind of like, you know, transgressive boundary crossing, the kind of uh, the, the fantasies of violence and things like that, all of which are really pioneered by the Stones. Um, and, you know, Zeppelin becomes the biggest rock band of the 1970s and one of the one of the biggest rock bands of all time. And what's missing, though, in Led Zeppelin's music, like I would frankly say, is an engagement with black music as a living thing. You know, that Led Zeppelin is not a band that performed with black performers with any sort of regularity the way that the Rolling Stones did. They did not seem to, at most points, seem to be listening to what was on R&B radio during the 70s. There are some some counterexamples of that. But for the most part, Led Zeppelin were a band that treated the blues as a very past primordial thing to be mined for these kind of fantasies of very, very conventional, you know, white hyper-masculinity, I would say.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, well, um, Jack Hamilton is Slate's pop critic, He's also a media and American studies professor at the University of Virginia. His new book is called Just
3: Around Midnight. Uh, Jack, when is that out? Uh, It came out uh, about two weeks ago, I think. Oh, it's out. All right, excellent. Yeah, it's out. (laughs) Uh,
1: And I should also mention that Jack is the host of our new Slate Academy series, Pop, Race, and the 60s, which explores all of these issues uh, in depth. Um, The next episode, which is coming out next week, uh, is about the, the interracial and transatlantic relationship between the Beatles and Motown Records. Uh, you may have heard the first episode when it was in your Culture Gab Fest feed a couple weeks ago Uh, but if you are interested check it out at slate.com slash pop academy
0: okay excellent Jack thanks so much for coming on the show
3: yeah thanks for having me on
0: Rachel Bruson was a woman on the internet writing about a tempestuous bipartisan romance she was having with a man named Todd. She was a liberal, he was a Republican, but something about their opinionated heat of their political conversations worked its way into the bedroom. Ooh la la. Then Todd fell hard for Donald Trump and the relationship hit the rocks. All of this played out in first-person testimonials online. It got picked up by outlets as disparate as Exo Jane, and even Nightline on ABC And then the whole thing turned out to be a hoax. Uh, Jezebel has exposed it completely now. And as they write, we confirmed in interviews with the people who wrote her into being that Rachel Grusin was fake, product of an unusually involved internet marketing scheme that managed to strew blog posts, personal essays, and social media profiles across fairly well-trafficked sections of the internet. Um, Gabriel. Tell me why we're doing this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I have to say, I pick through it. I can't figure uh, that out. What's interesting about this? Well, this is a story
1: about the contemporary Internet and the ways in which uh, the, the business model of the Internet today, the business model of Internet journalism today, um, is leading to this kind of uh, Potemkin memoir form in which um, there there is a solid commercial reason. This is not a hoax that's attempting to trick people and then expose them as rubes. This is a hoax that's attempting just to generate fake autobiographical content.
2: I think scam is a better word than hoax, really, right? Because the, the, the as you say, the intent was not to be tricky. The intent was to keep on hiding. They would have been happy not to be uncovered.
1: Right. And the only point of these stories, the only point of the existence of Rachel Broussin is to generate a, a, a story that's apparently a true event that happened to someone that's sufficiently interesting that people will click on it in order that at the bottom of that story, there can be a bio line, a biographical attribution that says Rachel Bruce is the dating editor on Review Weekly with a link to a website called Review Weekly. And that link to Review Weekly on a site like XO Jane is the only reason that these people ever existed and the only reason that actors were created to portray them on Nightline. Um, In order to improve the the search engine performance of this – Traffic arbitrage website review weekly um, the The creators of that site have had to invent an entire fake person and and place articles by that fake person on these theoretically uh, reputable websites uh, and so it exposes those reputable websites for what they really are. Um, And it it exposes the whole sort of business model of uh, gaming search engines and and selling and buying traffic back and forth. Um, And and the journalism that's been created out of it is just sort of thrown up as froth, as a sort of frothy side effect um, of that business model.
2: Would you say, Gabe, is this content farming, (laughs) this kind of creation of fake personas, does content farming always involve this kind of garbage ethical behavior? Or is there such a thing as like good content farming? Well,
1: content farming is obviously a pejorative term, right? If I tell you a website is a content farm, I'm telling you not to read it. I'm telling you there's nothing interesting on that website. Um,
2: But this would fall under that denomination. It would.
1: I mean, what's different, you know, if I make a website that, you know, has a million crappy articles about how to bake bread or whatever, then at least I'm not lying to anyone. I'm like, here's an article with a poor recipe for bread, and you could click on it and look at that. Um, What makes this a little more duplicitous is that I'm going to a site that actually has some kind of marginal editorial reputation, like ExoJane, and and saying, here is a real person, and then... uh, and and it's not, in fact, a real person. It's interesting that the stories are only of interest when we think that they happened to a real person, right? There's nothing interesting about a fictional story about a woman who falls in a liberal woman who falls in love with a Trump supporter and then breaks up with him when they have an argument about politics. Uh, but when we're told, yes, these are actual people who are living on the same planet that we all live on. Um, it, it's enough to generate enough clicks to just about cover the costs of hiring the copywriters to make up these fake people and the actors to go on TV and pretend to be them.
2: Right. There. Although not completely because there's a very amusing part of this expose where this Israeli entrepreneur who was responsible for setting up this office full of fake people people, or real writers creating fake people, essentially throws his hands up and says, ah, it wasn't worth it. We didn't get enough clicks, and it was all for nothing.
1: Right. That's what I like about it, is that in the end, he realizes he sort of reinvented the business model of journalism, and that's not a business he wants to be in. You have to deal with these. He says, um, the whole office, they wanted to be treated differently because they were like creative writers. So I got turned off with all this, and I, I just cut it and fired everybody. He doesn't. <laughs> he, he, he finds himself being an editor of an actual publication. And he, he says, I don't want to deal with that.
2: <laughs> they certainly succeeded in the creative (laughs) part with the complete falsification. Another remarkable aspect of this story, which to me, Steve, was mainly interesting because it exposed this kind of underbelly of the internet that we all sort of skate over but don't often dip into, was the obvious poor acting and evident fakeness of the the actors who were put on, I guess, was it Nightline, the show that the two appeared on, playing the the Trump-loving and hating couple? It just, it had such a, a it just seems like he could find better actors than that, even even amateur actors, that the ring of authenticity was not even something that was being searched for that hard. So I, I guess I was just sort of amazed that the garbage is, is that close to the surface and can can you know break into what we would consider mainstream media like Nightline so easily. You smell like booze.
3: I smell like patchouli.
2: Son of beer. I'm glad you washed your feet. Glad you wash your face.
0: Right. Well, this speaks to the aspect of the story that most interests me, was, which is that there's an appetite for first-person narratives of a certain kind. And um, so insatiable is that appetite that you can just feed it continuously for first-person supposedly true stories with titillating or out-and-out lurid um, uh, revelations. And that it's it's so solidified into a kind of Genre, Right. And you just sort of satisfies the satisfy the expectations of the genre that you can, you know, confect one out of nothing um, and satisfy all of those expectations so well that people don't notice the glaring inconsistencies in, for example, the author photo. Rachel Bruson looked like a completely different person from uh, from author photo to author photo. Um, And that was what
2: initially tipped off Jezebel to start the investigation. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, there seem to be cracks a mile wide in the story from the beginning, and the parent, you know, the actors on the Nightline video, which I haven't watched, apparently are so wooden and bizarre that no one would ever mistake them for an actual, um, for actual people playing themselves. Um, what is it about Gabriel about first-person luridly revealing narratives that seems to be almost what cat videos were to internet? 1.
1: 0. Well, this is something that uh, Laura Bennett wrote about in Slate uh, about six months ago, maybe eight months ago, in an essay called The First Person Industrial Complex, which is cited in this Jezebel piece. It, it, it scratches some sort of profound itch that I, I have to assume – this is me talking, not paraphrasing Laura now – but I have to assume that there is something sort of deep in our DNA, something atavistic and profound about our interest in gossip – In knowing what happened to someone else, that there's someone else in the village and something happened to them and I got to find out about that. That's information that I just profoundly want to have. And so when there's a headline that says something like, I'm a liberal and I fell in love with a Trump supporter, that's interesting. I'm going to click on that. Or me and the Trump supporter broke up because he loves Trump. It, um w- when you when when you present it as you know if you were to present this as a fable then it's of no worth whatsoever but if you present this as something that happened to a person who's on the same internet as you then it it, it scratches some kind of profound itch for people I think and there as you say there seems to be no limit to to the appetite for these things
2: although it's worth pointing out that I mean and, and again this to me was sort of a, a, a marvelous fact about the weird underbelly of the internet that I don't think about that this was only a modest success, this series of posts, right? It wasn't as if this was a wild viral sensation that made everybody get rich quick or something like that. I think it had something like 3,000 shares on social media or something like that. I think the
1: first one was a modest success. And then the second one, which was, you know, me and the Trump supporter broke up because we had a fight about politics. I think people got that, that one went a lot bigger. That's the one that got them on Nightline. And I think the reason that one takes off is because it allows people to say, I told you so. It allows the liberal readers to say, Oh, well, this is why you don't date a Trump supporter. You're an idiot on your own head, be it. Uh, and so it becomes a kind of um, internet shame circle of the kind that we've seen many times um, that, it, you know, it, it, we, we already know that that kind of outrage uh, spirals very well on, on social media. And in this case, it managed to spiral high enough to reach the rarefied era of Nightline on ABC. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, the piece is called The Team of Men Behind Rachel Bruce and the Fake Woman Whose Trump Fueled Breakup Went Viral. It's up on Jezebel. Uh, very curious if any of our listeners uh, encountered Rachel Bruce or similar instances of uh, of um, scammery. Um, come talk to us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you got?
2: You know, in honor of Jack Hamilton's book and uh, and that fascinating excerpt on Slate from, from his um, his book about this sort of racial exchange of between rock and roll and blues, I'm going to endorse a, a blues song that I think most people think of as a Rolling Stones song and attribute it to its actual author and recommend that you go listen to that. And uh, it's a very, very famous blues song, so some of our listeners may already know it. But if you don't, it's Love in Vain, the Robert Johnson song which does not appear on the sort of classic Robert Johnson blues album that floated through the hands, I'm sure, of all these musicians we were talking about in the 60s, the King of the Delta Blues Singers. It was instead a bootleg that only a few people knew about, that then Bob Dylan started to circulate, then it was covered by The Stones, it was covered by Todd Rundgren. I can't think of all the white musicians now that have covered Love in Vain. And also some black blues singers like Keb Mo, The uh, the blues guitarist, has played Love in Vain, but nobody plays it and nobody sings it like Robert Johnson, who, if you don't know him, is sort of... You could think of him as sort of the Rambo of the blues. He was this very short-lived, incredibly talented singer-songwriter who only recorded, I believe, two sessions. He put down two sessions in 1936, 1937, something like that. This song is from the second of those two sessions, and it's just a a few verses long, very, very simple, uh, beautiful stripped-down lyric and a, a, a gorgeous song. Maybe we can use it as our outro. So Love in Vain by Robert Johnson, now available in iTunes near you.
0: Excellent. Gabriel, what do you got?
1: Uh, so I'm endorsing a series of books of graphic novels that I've been reading with my daughter, who's five years old. Um, they're by the British cartoonist Luke Pearson, uh, P-E-A-R-S-O-N. Uh, and they're, they're about a girl called Hilda. The first one is called Hilda and the Troll. And the, the new one, which we just read last night, is called Hilda and the Stone Forest. They're about a little girl who lives with her mother. Uh, and her pet, whose name is Twig, who looks like a little dog with antlers, and they're, they're supernatural and, and um, fantastical adventure stories, and they're, they're filled with excitement and filled with danger. Uh, but the heroine, Hilda, is so resourceful and so confident and has such sort of savoir faire that, that the feeling of reading these books is of control and safety. And, and my kid sometimes gets uh, anxious in, in thrilling adventure scenes and action scenes in Disney movies. But she finds these books both really engaging and also, I think, really comforting. Um, They're just beautifully drawn and beautifully cartooned and, and um, they really feel like they're going to be children's classics. And my kid is going to pass them on to her kids. Uh, So get on that. Now the cartoonist is Luke Pearson and the books are
0: uh, about a girl named Hilda. Ah, That sounds amazing. Um, All right. Well this week I'm going to endorse a band that I've been listening to for a while, but I'm getting more and more into the music, the Ravenettes. We got any Ravenettes fans here.
2: Mm. Are they still around? Are they current band? They're
0: sort of current. They've been around since 'o three, um, but they no. Just to me, that making... sounds like a
2: Motown girl group. I've never heard of them.
0: <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Actually, it's more like Jesus and Mary Chain meets Motown. But it's a you know very indie rock and roll band from Copenhagen. Uh, you know, Fender tube amp reverby band. But uh, anyway, love their stuff. Totally dig it. Check it out. Gabriel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Dana, thank you. See you in LA. See you there. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producers this week are Benjamin Frisch and Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster on itunescom Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cultfest for Gabriel Roth and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Well it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell. And all your loves and vain. All your loves and vain. Roll up to the station